Today's scripture passage is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is found on page 457 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 22. Hear the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but as heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Before him shall bow down who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Have you ever gotten one of those texts 
or emails, have you ever caught wind, caught wind somehow that one of your friends or family member has been in a serious accident? And the, the feelings that wash over you in that moment, the feelings of dread and concern. What is your first question in those moments? The question is, are they stable? Have, have the doctors and nurses been able to stabilize my friend? They might be suffering, they might still be in pain, but at least they're in stable condition, we might say. There are very few experiences in our human lives that are common to anyone who has ever lived. But I do think that suffering is one of those things. It's a universal reality, and because it is, we ought to be prepared for it. Because whether you're in it now or not, suffering is coming. Be encouraged. My prayer and my hope for us this morning is that we would learn to suffer in stable spiritual condition. Human suffering wears a million masks, and you've probably experienced it in a very unique way. But it's like when you get really bad news at work, or maybe you've been victimized by prejudice or injustice. The temptation or the addiction that you've prayed and prayed and prayed about and fought and fought and fought and still can't shake. A loveless, painful marriage. When a friendship is torpedoed by gossip, Anxiety, depression, infertility, disease, doubt, unemployment, sick children, unwanted singleness, cancer, untimely death. You fill in the blank with yours. What do you do? I think Psalm 22 is tailor-made and God-breathed to help you suffer through these, whatever you're faced with, and to help you suffer in stable condition. We don't actually know what circumstances sort of brought David into this season where he penned these words from Psalm 22, but I do think that we can learn from his experience that merely looking around is destabilizing. Merely looking around you is destabilizing. You have to look around at the world that you live in because you have to live. You can't ignore your life. You can't act like the pain that you're experiencing or the problem that you're in doesn't exist. But if you only look at your pain, if that's the only air you breathe, your soul will be crushed. And you can watch that reality playing out in real time for David in Psalm 22. So what I hope you gather from this this morning, I hope we, what we all gather, is that the Bible understands your suffering. God, he, he gets it. David here suffers through seasons of silence, of scorn, and of affliction. First here, the silence in verses 1 and 2. David here, he starts with two questions, and they're both directed at God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? And both questions for David are met with silence. David felt completely alone, utterly forsaken, like God was a myth, or maybe even worse, like God was deaf to his prayers. No help in the day, no rest in the night. Can you relate? But David doesn't only sense God's silence. He's also wounded by the world's scorn of him. Verses 6 to 8. 
There's something so deeply hurtful when someone laughs at us, isn't there? Especially with something we identify with so intimately. That's why our kids complain when they're being laughed at. She's laughing at me. It's just, there's a pain there when someone is laughing at you. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And it gets worse for him in verses 12 to 18. He says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joints. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. It's like brittle pottery that's easily broken. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And so for David, it's just like one thing after another. David is straight out of gas. There is nothing left for him to give. He has spent. He couldn't get off the mat even one more time. The silence, the scorn, the incessant affliction had KO'd him. Have you felt this? You're not living the victorious Christian life. Oh, no, no. You're far from it. You're working on just wanting to even get out of bed every day. Just holding on for dear life. You know if you get up again, you're just going to get beat down again. So what's even the point? David feels your pain. And God is not silent on this. He has spoken into that pain through Psalm 22. Verses 1 and 2, he's looking out and he's despairing. But then in verses 3 and 5, the script kind of flips a little bit. He looks up and there's hope. He looks out, despair. Looks up, there is hope. So number two here, confidently looking up is stabilizing. After processing the silence of God, David reminds himself who he's dealing with here. He says, yet. So while at the same time all this mess is going on, yet, still, you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. To you they cried, and they weren't put to shame. So we all need to force ourselves to take a moment, every once in a while, and more often than not, to remember what is actually true about God. What is actually true about his character, who he is, and his record, what he has done in the past. David intentionally recalls what God is like and what he's done in order to gain himself a little bit of traction, a little, a little bit of stability. So when, when's the last time, I wonder, that you've just really considered what God is like and what he has done? It will stabilize you in suffering. When I was in college, I remember my grandmother would send me care packages. Usually they'd be filled with chocolate chip granola bars, and then they'd be filled with Tabasco-flavored spicy Cheez-Its, which to me is a combo platter of pure joy right there. Spicy Cheez-Its and chocolate chip granola bars. But there's another thing that I remember always came in those care packages. Each one would have a card in it. Sometimes they'd have a little bit of money, to buy more spicy Cheez-Its. And then she'd always scrawl a few words on those cards. She would write three words. Keep looking up. Sometimes that's all it would say. Keep looking up to the king who is on the throne. This kind of Godward gaze is David's only pathway to stability and suffering. A Godward gaze is your only pathway 
to stability and suffering. And he gazes again after this next tirade about the scorn in verses 6 to 8. He preaches to himself. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Listen, someone will always be preaching to your soul. If you don't preach to yourself, someone else will. But the ears of your soul are always perked. I'd encourage you to follow David's example here and to preach the truth to yourself. There is nothing wrong with talking to yourself. I do it all the time. All right? Preach the gospel. Preach the truth to yourself. And so this cadence continues here for David. Despair giving way to hope. Giving way to despair giving way to hope. And this is real life, isn't it? This is like the fight that God has called us to. And the best option that you and me have The best option we have in suffering is simple, knowing God better. The best option for you when you are suffering is to know God better through this book. Politics cannot stabilize you. Money can't. Booze can't. A nicer house can't. Sex can't. Netflix can't. The best, things, the best those things can do are to be temporary diversions from your deepest need. We need something better than diversion. We need deliverance. Deliverance is always better than diversion, which is why I couldn't be happier to share with you the transition that this psalm has here toward the end. This is kind of like a two-part psalm, verses 1 to 21 and then 22 to 31. 1 to 21 are a prayer where David feels deserted by God. And then 22 to 31 are a praise where David celebrates the deliverance, the deliverance of God. But, but David doesn't just look up for stability. He looks into the future for stability. So confidently looking long sustains stability. Confident, confidently looking long sustains stability. So something shifts here halfway through verse 21. Look what he says. He says, you have saved me. It's like that daddy in Mark 9, if you can take your mind back to that story, who desperately wants deliverance for his little boy. And he says, look, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help me where I don't believe. That's the rhythm of faith and suffering. That's what it means to be human and suffer. Dismayed at what you see heartened by looking to the God who saves. One of the practical ways that we've sort of tried to live this out in our home, we've tried to cast our gaze to the long view without losing sight of the current view. And we do this by intentionally identifying sickness in our home as something that should drive us to hold on to our future hope. Sickness is something that has driven us to hold on to our future hope. So we do pray for healing from the sniffles or infection or scrapes and bruises or whatever. But more than anything, we pray in front of our kids that this sickness will make us long for the day when there will be no more sickness. We pray that God works that into our hearts. In this way, we don't ignore the pain of fever or flu or whatever, but we do attempt to frame it eternally. Looking at the ailment through the lens of eternity can transform your suffering. 
it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. Our fevered despair will one day give way to flourishing and praise. And that's the truth that you have to preach to yourself in the midst of suffering. It's what David's doing here. So do you know what's encouraging about the flow of this psalm? It took David a while to land on verses 22 to 31. It took him a while to get there, where he's filled with faith and hope and confident expectation about the future. And sometimes, maybe most times, it'll take us a while to get there too. And the Spirit here paves a way for David to sort of give, give space to vent, a holy vent to his frustration. But hear this. We need to hear this. We need to speak this into our hearts this morning. When God is present, despair will inevitably give way to hope. When God is present, despair will inevitably give way to hope. Maybe not pain-free hope, certainly not scar-free hope, but hope. And why is there hope here? Verse 21, because God hears. Probably in most of your translations there, it says in verse 21, you have rescued me. But the true meaning behind that word, rescued there, is answered. The ESV, if you have an ESV, has a footnote there. And if you look at it carefully, it, it, it identifies that as the meaning of that word there. And so in order to answer someone, you actually have to hear them. And so there is hope here because God hears you. And so once David is assured of this hope, that God hears him, he resolves to keep praising, maybe even in the silence. And interestingly here, verse 22, he resolves to keep praising and to keep gathering. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. There's the praise. And where does he do it? In the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You see, in the midst of our suffering, I don't know if you're anything like me, but what I tend to want to do is to turn inward when I'm frustrated or suffering, to hole up until the storm passes over. Ugh, I just don't feel like worshiping this weekend. Ugh, I don't want to see anybody, especially not the people at church, with smiling faces. But this is precisely the time that you need to gather, to get together in Jesus' name with Jesus' people to sing your heart out, to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, to cast yourself on the mercies of God with the people of God. We all know instinctively that only doing the things that we feel like doing is a recipe for disaster. You know that. Only exercising when you feel like it, only eating healthy when you feel like it, only going to work when you feel like it, and now maybe to this you say, yeah, but wouldn't it be hypocrisy for me to come when I don't feel like it or when I don't want to? And I heard a pastor say this recently, and I think he's right on. He says, to do what is right when you are suffering is not a mark of hypocrisy. It's actually a mark of maturity. To do what is right when you are suffering is not a mark of hypocrisy. It's a mark of maturity. So yes, there are certain things you need even when you don't want them. Gathering with this family right here, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, gathering with this family during seasons of suffering might just be one of those things. 
when we're suffering, the way we stabilize is by being lifted up with the people who gather here. Another pastor, his name is Mike Cosper, he said this, the gathering is unique, not as an encounter with God, since God's presence is a constant comfort and help to the Christian. It's unique as an encounter with God, intensified among the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God. It's communal, not individualistic. Christ in me meets Christ in you. The gathering should be a place where believers are built up and encouraged in the midst of the various trials and circumstances in their lives. So when we gather, we sing to each other. We declare the truths of the gospel to one another. Our presence and our participation is not merely for the sake of our individual relationship with God, but it's also for our brothers' and sisters' sake. When you sing, you are speaking the truth in love to your church around you, and your bold confession of faith may be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of his or her dark hours. David understood that gathering with God's people is a stabilizing experience in seasons of suffering. We need to understand that too. And then look how this worship really brings the long view into focus here. The last root of this psalm digs deep into the rich soil of God's inevitable future. Verses 27 to 31 are prophetic, they are victorious, they are beautiful, and they will stabilize you. Look at what the end, the end of this world will be like when God's rule comes in finality. Starting in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There is coming a day. Hold on to this. There is coming a day when Jesus will make everything new. He'll fix it all. Let this stabilize you even as you suffer. Please don't be offended by this. But Jason Todd is the most avid Eagles fan that I know. The most devoted. Some of you are bristling already. You're like, you don't know me. He drove to Minnesota and back for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But I, I bet a bunch of us would have done that if we would have been given free tickets to the Super Bowl like he was. That's not what tells me he is a uniquely passionate fan. The proof of Jason's unique passion is that he's invited me over to watch the Super Bowl with him no less than five times. And not, not next year's Super Bowl. He's not like, next year when the Super Bowl comes, come over to my house and watch it. No, he's invited me over to his house to watch the Super Bowl from two years ago, again and again and again. He told me last week at VBS that he's seen that Super Bowl that the Eagles won no less than 15 times. He's watched the replay no less than 15 times since that final whistle blew on February the 4th, 2018. Do you know how stressed he was in that building in Minnesota early in the fourth quarter in that game a couple of years ago? Do you know how much stress he watches the replay of that game with now? Zippo. Take, for instance, Tom Brady's touchdown pass to Gronk to take the lead in the fourth quarter. I don't know if you can remember this. The Pats go up 33-32, to 32, and it looks like another Brady-Belichick miracle, and like we're all going to be groveling at Archer's feet. 
Arthur is a big Pats fan, if you don't know. But do you know why I feared that scorn from Arthur in those moments? It's because I didn't know the end. Little did I know that he should have been the scared one. Because now when I watch it with Jason, I know the end. I know what happens. There's no fear in my heart that this will be the one time the replay gets it wrong. Because we know the end. We've seen how it goes. Eagles win. Pats lose. Right? Friends, because of the cross and the triumphant real resurrection, Jesus wins. Death and sin lose. Knowing the end reduces fear, stress, and angst. That's the power of verses 27 to 31. The end matters. When it looks like things are slipping out of control, the end matters. When the suffering and pain intensifies, the end matters. When there are more questions than answers, the end matters. And it matters even more than your present. Friends, this is one of the primary purposes of gathering on Sundays. To point one another to this sure and inevitable end. God isn't done. Heaven is a reality and it's waiting for all of us who are in Jesus. So with that future in view, we press on even as we are pressed by affliction, by silence, by scorn. Your attendance here on Sundays is no small thing. You need to be here to speak and sing this into others' hearts and souls. You need to be here to be sung to and spoken into by other people's gospel words of assurance and stabilizing truth. Well, we'd be shortchanging this psalm if we didn't cover one more thing very briefly. I introduced the concept a couple of weeks ago with the help of my seven-year-old Ellie. She helped draw a picture for me that I've added a few pieces of information into here. And so, if you're at the foot of a mountain that has a higher mountain just behind it, you may not even realize it because all you can see is the large mountain right in front of you. You can't see the thing behind you because it's obscured by the smaller one. But if you were to climb up that mountain, you'd soon realize that there is something bigger just beyond it, something grander, something more beautiful. Well, when David first penned this psalm, he was sitting at the base of that theoretical front mountain. This mountain for today is the front mountain, Psalm 22. But he didn't know what lay beyond what he could see. There's something even more beautiful that lays beyond the immediate historical context that David wrote this into, even though at this point he may have had no idea what it was. Though Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the crucifixion, Psalm 22's ultimate function in our lives is to act as a lens through which to examine the cross. And then beyond that, the cross itself functions as a lens to, to view our own suffering through. The cross demonstrates loudly and clearly that God has a redemptive plan for your suffering. It is not wasted. So Psalm 22 is two things. It's prophetic and it's messianic. It prophesies about the Messiah. So consider that Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 twice. And if you're not familiar with the history of the Bible, Psalm 22, again, written a thousand years before Jesus was even on the earth. Jesus quotes twice from Psalm 22 while he's on the cross. That first one is right there in verse 1. My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in Matthew 27, we read Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I won't take time to read through all of these, but you can, you can see for yourself, I think, it's self-evident that the gospel writers viewed Psalm 22 as a prophetic telling of the crucifixion story. You sort of just tick through all of them on that table there. Psalm 22, penned a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And get this, 600 years before the crucifixion, uh, before crucifixion as a means of torture had been invented. So David is writing about a method of capital punishment that he knew nothing about and had never seen before. Hands and feet pierced. And remember how I said that Jesus quoted twice from this psalm while he was on the cross? First in verse 1. And it's a little hard to see, but Jesus quotes the opening words and then the final words of this psalm too. You see those last five words there in verse 31? That he has done it. Well, those words could also be translated, that it is finished. Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, that it is finished. And then uh, later in the gospel in John 19, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus clearly sees himself as the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. And he sees himself as the ultimate victor over suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gives way to, it is finished. It's done. What was finished? Death, sin, suffering, despair. Despair gives way to hope. Suffering gives way to salvation. And death gives way to life. God has done this through his gospel, through his son. So what do we glean from this? We learn that this was all in God's good plan. That Christ's suffering was no accident. It was planned for our eternal good. It was prophesied many years before it even happened. And if God could bring about good from the world's most unjust suffering, don't you think, don't you think you could bring about good from your suffering? You can know God hears your prayers. You can know it. Even when he appears to be silent. Because in the silence of Jesus' grave, God was still speaking. He was saying, wait, just wait. Trust me. I know the ending. I know it's the fourth quarter. Seems like darkness is one. But wait, watch this. Things are about to turn around in a big way. I know this because I know the end. And it's better than the Philly special. It's the resurrection of the Son of God. There is there's one more place that we find the words of David on the lips of New Testament writers. And I think this is good, too good for us to pass up before we close here. It's from Hebrews chapter 2. It says this. For it was fitting that God should make the founder of salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here's where he quotes Psalm 22, 25, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Did you hear that? Jesus 
suffered that he might empathize with your suffering. Jesus transforms your suffering by ultimately triumphing over suffering. And his triumph is our triumph through faith. Jesus suffered that we might enter into his family. I don't know if you caught the craziest part of this, though. This is crazy. God, because of Jesus, is not ashamed of you. For those of us in Christ, through faith, your holy creator isn't ashamed of you. He is pleased with you. He's not afraid to call you brother or sister. He's not afraid to call you family. And we all have family members where it's like, eh, you kind of want to distance yourself from them. God does not feel that way about you. He is pleased with you. This steady smile of your Savior is what will keep you stable in suffering. When you're tempted to only look around, look up. When you're tempted to only look around, look long. The end is sure, and you can suffer in stable condition. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for suffering for us, for enduring the ultimate suffering so that we could enjoy the ultimate delight of the Father's smile on us. I pray this week as we enter into darkness, as we enter into frustration, sadness, pain, that we would be stabilized by this good news. For your glory, amen.